0: Welcome to episode 9 of How Catholicism Came to the United States, this time Texas. As early as 1544, Texas was visited by one of the most illustrious of the Spanish missionaries, Father de Olmos, OSF. His brave heart did not quail as he directed his solitary steps. On the lonely path which was to bring him among the fierce Texan tribes. Quote, The wild men gathered around the envoy of the gospel and hearkened in peace to his doctrines. Numbers were persuaded, and a flourishing mission grew up around the humble conquest of Almos's hardy zeal. Spaniards first introduced the Catholic faith in his region when conquistador Francisco Vasquez de Coronado passed through in the 1540s expedition to conquer the fabled cities of gold. He and his men rested at the campsite in Blanco Canyon, southeast of present-day Floydada. The South Plains would come under the care of the Mexican Diocese of Linares. Once a U.S. territory, this area became under the jurisdiction of an American bishop who extended direct pastoral care as the uh, marker, historical marker. I don't remember where it is. It's in West Texas somewhere. John O'Kane Burry mentions the priests who accompanied LaSalle's unfortunate expedition doubtless cast good seed along their pathway and finally watered the prairies of Texas with the last drop of their blood. What does he mean by this? We go to the Bollock Bullock Museum, the story of Texas.com. says, first, a series of mistakes the Spanish rulers in the late 1600s. For the Spanish rulers in the last 1600s, there were two burning questions. One, how do we secure North American territorial claims in order to protect our Mexican silver mines? And two, how do we gain more souls for the Catholic Church? The answer to both questions came wearing a blue robe and a cross. Missionaries and explorers. been wandering through Texas since the 1500s. The explorers were looking for gold while the missionaries were looking to spread the gospel to the American Indians. Conquistadors such as Francisco Vasquez de Coronado, Hernando de Soto, and Alvar Nunez Nunez uh, Cabeza de Vaca never found any gold and left disappointed and disillusioned. Many of the Franciscan friars were killed by the American Indians who were not especially interested in their message. By the middle of the 1600s, the Spanish moved on. The Franciscans had returned to Mexico and the missions near present-day San Angelo, uh, El Paso and Presidio, Texas were largely abandoned. And then Rene Robert Calviere, Seor de la Salle mistakenly sailed into Matagorda Bay, there's a quote by Father Damien Massanet, and I remarked that I would take along three priests for the Texas, myself being the fourth, besides two for the mission in San Salvador, which is on the way, making a total of six priests to be sent by the college, and in the event of a Texas receiving the faith, then the college should send whatever other priests would be required. Here's a photo of La Salle's ships in the Bay in Texas. La Salle's unexpected and mostly disastrous arrival in 1684 near present-day Corpus Christi sent Spain into a panicky frenzy. Spanish land in Texas had to be protected from French takeover at all costs. In 1686, Franciscan friar Father Damien Massinet and General Alonso de Leon the Spanish embodiments of church and state headed north from Mexico into Texas. Their first task was to find La Salle and his colony. After three years of searching they did. This is from General Alonso de Leon in sixteen eighty nine, I guess his diary. April Friday the twenty second. As we near the settlement, our party set out, though the day dawned rainy. Three leagues down the creek we found it. Having halted with the the forces, about an Arquiseboot shot away, we went to see it and found all the houses sacked, all the chests, bottle cases, and all the rest of the settlers' furniture broken. Apparently more than 200 books torn apart and with the rotten leaves scattered through the the patios, all in French. We found three dead bodies scattered over the plain. One of these... From the dress that still clung to the bones appeared to be that of a woman. We took the bodies up, chanted mass with the bodies present, and buried them. We looked for the other dead bodies, but could not find them. Whence we supposed that they had been thrown into the creek and had been eaten by alligators, of which there were many. Father Massenet in 1689 continues, We saw no trace of Frenchmen having been there, except that certainly there were signs that the Indians had dwelt there. I myself set fire to the fort, and as there was a high wind, the wood, by the way, was from the sloop brought by the Frenchmen, which had sunk on entering the bay. In half an hour, the fort was in ashes. In 1691, one year after Father Massanet set fire to La Salle's doomed Fort St. Louis settlement. He blessed the timber church of San Francisco de, la, de los Tejas, the first Spanish mission in East Texas near present-day Augusta. Four months later, a second mission, Santísimo Nombre de Maria, was established a few miles to the east. By 1692, the Spanish state had two new colonial footholds in Texas. It appeared that the Catholic Church also had a potentially willing population of converts in the Nambadachi peoples of the Hassine Confederacy. I delivered to the tribal governor a staff with a cross, giving him the title of governor of all of his people and giving him to understand by means of interpreter that which he should observe and do, that he should make all his families attend Christian teaching in order that they might be instructed in the affairs of our holy Catholic faith so that later they may be baptized and become Christians. He accepted the staff with much pleasure, promising to do all that we desired of him. That's from General Alonso de Leon, 1689. Father Massenet said in 1689, If one of them comes out peaceably to meet you, tell them to come forward, for we are not here to take away from them what they possess or to hurt them. On the contrary, we wish to be their friend and help them to our utmost. In the idealized Spanish view of the mission plan, the result would be that the American Indians would become both good Catholics and good Spanish citizens, that Franciscan friars would be the instruments of instruction, in a mission system that seemed both sound and even beneficial, at least to the Spanish. It would work like this. American Indians would report to an enclosed ground on the self-sufficient mission community where they would attend classes taught in non-native Spanish to learn about Christianity and the Catholic Church. The Indians would work hard within the mission walls, planting and harvesting crops, maintaining buildings, and learning valuable Spanish trades. They would come to understand, care about, and want to be part of the Spanish culture. They would grow and mature in both spiritually and citizenship. The American Indians would be saved and secularized and would eventually be released from the mission system as valuable members of the Catholic Church and Spanish Texas society. Except that they wouldn't, by and large, most American Indians didn't want to be saved, secularized, or Spanish. Spanish mission history in Texas repeated itself American Indians didn't participate in the system. Franciscan friars were killed by hostile actions or disease, and the whole pr- proposal mostly failed. By 1693, Santísimo Nombre de Maria Mission had been washed away by Nietzsche's river flood waters, and Father Massanat himself had burned San Francisco de los Tejas to the ground. The, Sp- the Spanish abandoned their efforts to establish missions in East Texas. Weary and discouraged, Franciscan friars walked home to Mexico again. In 1711, Friar Hidalgo wrote a secret letter to the French governor of Louisiana. Hidalgo asked the governor to help him reestablish the missions in East Texas. The friar, who had been with Massanet and De Leon at the first San Francisco mission, was angry that the Franciscans had abandoned the American Indians of Texas. In 1714, Cadillac sent a well-known French-Canadian trader, Luis de Saint-Denis, to convince the Spanish government that it was good business for both countries to rebuild the old mission forts. And providing a system of new supply missions along the San Antonio River wasn't a bad idea either. In 1718, the supply mission of San Antonio de Valero was established, the Alamo. The history of Texas would never be the same. One of the most important figures in Texas' religious history never set foot in Texas at all. She never in her life traveled beyond her t- tiny village in Spain, yet she stirred religious fervor from the Concho River to the headwaters of the Rio Grande. The story begins in 1602 when Maria was born in the Pueblito de Agreta. She was a lovely child born to Catholic parents of noble rank. Barely beyond her toddler years, Maria showed an unusual devotion to a life of prayer and piety. When she was 10, she already wanted to join a convent. When she was 12, her parents finally blessed her wish to join the Discals Carmelite Nuns of Tarazona. Before that could be arranged, though, Maria's mother had a vision, which God instructed her to convert their mansion into a convent. She and her daughter would both become nuns. Her father would join a local monastery, following in the footsteps of his sons, who were already friars. In four years, this all came to pass. At 18, Maria took her vows and became Maria de Jesus, Maria of Jesus de Agraida. The habit of her order was a dark cobalt blue. Now a nun, she spent more time than ever alone in prayer. Maria's religious devotions intensified. Her sisters worried about her frequent fasting, frail health, and life of extreme deprivation. Yet for her, it was a glorious time. She said God had given her a divine gift. It was the gift of bilocation. She could be in two places at once. Through meditation, she could appear to God's children in faraway lands and teach them about Jesus. She says she first appeared the Humano tribe in present-day Texas in the 1620s. She did this for about 10 years from, from the time she was 18 to 29. Her And according to legend, the Humano Indians of the time confirmed that a woman in blue, as they called her, had come among them. The first proof is offered in the story of 50 Humano Indians appearing on their own at the San Antonio in De La Isleta Mission, near present-day Albuquerque, asking the Franciscan priests to teach them about Jesus. When asked how they knew of him, the men said that a lady in blue had come to them and taught them the gospel. She had instructed them to go west to find holy men who could teach them more about the faith and baptize them. They, as the legend goes, pointed to the point painting of a nun in the mission and said, She is like her, but younger. The priests were stunned because they had no missions or missionaries in that part of what is today West Texas. They certainly knew of no nuns who had attempted missionary work there. How could this be? The head cleric of New Mexico, Esteban de Perea, asked two priests to go home with the Humanos to verify these claims about the Lady in Blue. They traveled to the region that is today San Angelo and found that many of the Humano She had indeed come to them many times over the years. The priest immediately baptized 2,000 humanos, they say, because of Maria de Agredas. Historians Donald Chipman and Denise Joseph wrote that humanos said Maria came to them, quote, like light at sunset. She was kind and a gentle person who spoke sweet words to them that they could understand. The respected religious historian Carlos E. Castaneda, not to be confused with the one who wrote about the teachings of Don Juan, said that Maria preached in Spanish, but the Humanos understood her in their tongue, and when they spoke in their tongue, she understood them in Spanish. Such claims resulted in a custodian of the Franciscans in New Mexico, Father Alonso de Benavides traveling all the way to Agreda in Spain to interview Maria to verify her authenticity. According to him, she told him of things in Texas and about the world of the Humanos that only one who had been there could have known. Her bilocation claims were considered credible then, and even now the Vatican seems to agree and is considering her for canonization. Chapman and Joseph tell us that, according to Humano legend, quote, when she last appeared, She blessed the Humanos and slowly went away into the hills. The next morning, the area was covered with a blanket of strange flowers that were a deep blue, blue like her habit. These were, they say, the first blue bonnets. And perhaps the Humanos found comfort when these flowers returned each year, adorned in their blue habits, assuring them that the lady in blue was always with them. So there was 30 missions in Texas between 1659 and 1795 and you'll see by 1850 I think it is they had a census there was five churches that were Catholic left so the missions, the Spanish missions kind of crumbled there's a few of them uh, Corpus Christi de la Islata San Francisco de, la, de los Teos San Antonio de Valero, and uh, La Bahia. <clears throat> Corpus Christi de la Islata. Islete? Isleta? Isleta. That was the first mission built in West Texas, 1682. Uh, it was built for the Tijuana Tijua Indians near present-day El Paso. And, let's see, a little bit more on that. A generation later, this is taken from the Texas Almanac, missions were established in 1682 as a result of the revolt uh, by Pueblo Indians against the Spanish in the upper Rio Grande Valley. San Antonio de la Isleta, later called Corpus Christi de la Isleta, was established in today's El Paso for the Tigua the Indians. the second mission, Nuestra Señora de la Concepción de Socorro, was established within days of the first for Piro, Tano, and Jemez Indians. Both missions sheltered tribes that had accompanied the the settlers in flight from the revolt in the Santa Fe area upriver. See, in 1683 and 1684, missions were founded around Presidio and an, and an attempt near present-day San Angelo resulted in the establishment of San Clemente mission which lasted only months. There's a San Francisco de la Tejas. It's the first mission in East Texas built for the Tejas Indians 1690 by Father Damien Massanet and Alonso de Leon, Leon, the Spanish governor. San Antonio de Valero, another word for it is the Alamo. Uh, Martin de Alcon Alcon is the governor of Texas, founder of San Antonio in 1718, which was founded on June 13th, hence, Saint Anthony San Antonio and he held Bill San Antonio de Valero. This is La Bahia. this becomes the site of the Golad massacre where James Fannin and troops were executed by Mexican forces as the Presidio and Mission Neal near Golad, Goliad. As, uh, there was, there was, we talked about this before. Then the attempt by French explorer René Robert Cavalier, Uh, we mentioned him a couple minutes ago, Uh, Sierra de La Salle to establish a colony in 1685 on Garcitas Creek near present-day Victoria prompted the Spanish authorities to locate missions in East Texas, Fort St. Louis. The first East Texas mission, San Francisco de la Tejas, was established in 1690 on San Pedro Creek, near present-day Weches? Weches? W-E-C-H-E-S. A second mission, Santísimo Nombre de Maria, was soon founded nearby. The natives were not receptive to the friars' efforts, and by early 1694, Both missions were abandoned. In 1718 the mission San Antonio de Valero, now commonly known as the Alamo, was moved to its present site from Guerrero on the Mexican side of the Rio Grande. It was followed by the founding of four other missions in the San Antonio area San Jose y San Miguel de Aguayo San Jose, Nuestra Señora de la Purísima Concepción, San Juan Constra- Capistrano and San Francisco de la Espada. The four the latter four now comprise the San Antonio Missions National Historic Park. According to Wikipedia, Mission San Juan Capistrano originally christened in 1716 as La Mission San Jose de Los Nazonis Is located in south-central Texas, was founded in 1731 by Spanish Catholics of the Franciscan Order on the eastern banks of the San Antonio River in present-day San Antonio, Texas. The new settlement, part of the chain of Spanish missions, was named for the 15th-century theologian warrior-priest who resided in the Abruzzo region of Italy. The mission San Juan was named after St. John of Capistrano. The first primitive chapel was built out of brush and mud. Eventually, a bell tower containing two bells was incorporated into the structure, which was replaced by a long granary with a flat flat roof and an attractive belfry around 1756. Around 1760, construction of a larger church began on the east side of the mission compound, but was never complete due to lack of sufficient labor. Mission San Juan did not prosper to the same extent as the other San Antonio missions because lands allotted to it were not sufficient to plant vast qualities of crops or breed large animals, or breed large numbers of horses and cattle. A dam was constructed in order to supply water to the mission's irrigation system. Uh, the mission reportedly owned a thousand head of cattle, thirty five hundred sheep and goats. And 100 horses in 1762. Some 265 neophytes resided in adobe huts at the mission in 1756. By 1790, the native Kohuchin people were living in stone quarters, though their number had dropped to 58. The mission often encountered systemic issues concerning corralling the native nomadic tendencies, which consequently led to large amounts of. Of the converted Indians to sporadically leave. San Juan Capistrano was administered by the College of Santa Cruz de Queretaro until March 1773 when it was placed under the care of the College of Nuestra Señora de Guadalupe de Zacatas. The mission was secularized on July 14, 1794 after which time it was attended by the resident priest at Mission San Francisco de la Espada until about 1813. It was then attended by the, one of the remaining missionary at the nearby Mission San Jose y San Miguel de Aguayo until 1824. The native population of the mission was either disbanded, temporarily moved to other missions, or Hispanicized. Mission San Juan was largely neglected until 1840 when religious services were once again conducted, this time by diocesan priests, a neighborhood around the mission, partially inhabited by the descendants of the mission's population, steadily grew in part to the construction of a railroad nearby in 1855. Members of the Claritian and Redemptus Orders also held mass in the church until 1967, when the Franciscans returned to Mission San Juan. Mission San Jose y San Miguel de Aguayo is a historic Catholic mission in San Antonio, Texas. The mission was named in part for the Marquis de San Miguel de Aguayo, Jose de Azlor y Verto de Vera. Many buildings on the campus of Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas borrow architectural elements from those found at Mission San Jose. The mission was founded on February 23, 1720, because Mission San Antonio de Valero had become overcrowded shortly after its founding with refugees from the closed East Texas missions. Father Antonio Marjel received permission from the governor of Coahuila and Texas, the Marquis de San Miguel de Aguaro, to build the new Mission five miles south of San Antonio de Valero. Like San Antonio, Mission San Jose serves the Coahuian Indians. The first buildings made of brush straw and mud were quick, quickly replaced by large stone structures, including guest rooms, offices, a dining room, and a pantry. A a heavy outer wall was built around the main part of the mission and rooms for 350 Indians were built into the walls. A new church, which is still standing, was constructed in 1768 from local limestone. The mission lands were given to its Indians in 1794 and mission activities officially ended in 1824. After that, the buildings were home to soldiers, the homeless, and bandits. Starting in 1933, the Civil Works Administration and then the Works Progress Administration provided the labor to rebuild and restore the restore the grounds of the mission. Some of the funding for the restoration came from money allotted by the US for the Texas Centennial Exposition held in Dallas in 1936. The mission walls and Indian quarters were rebuilt and the granary was restored. The church facade features a top, the, from the top, A cross representing Jesus Christ, St. Joseph holding the infant Jesus, St. Dominic, and St. Francis, Our Lady of Guadalupe, and St. Joachim and St. Anne holding the infant Mary. Located at the south wall of the church sacristy is a rose window sculpture, and significance of the rose window is unknown. According to folklore, the window was sculpted by a Spanish master craftsman and artist, Pedro Huizar, and dedicated it to his sweetheart Rosa, who on her way from Spain to meet with Pedro, tragically lost her life at sea. The Rose Window was sculpted in 1775 and is an example of Baroque architecture in America. Today the mission is an active parish and is staffed by the Order of Friars Minor and the current pastor is Father Martinez. Mission Nuestra Señora de la Purísima Concepción de Acuna Commonly called Mission Concepcion is a national historic landmark and is part of the story of global and regional conflicts. Mission Concepcion is one of the missions authorized by the Spanish government to serve as a buffer against the threat of French invasion from Louisiana into Spanish territory. Mission Concepcion faced a number of pressures from the beginning that eventually led to its relocation. Even at its new site along the San Antonio River, Indians and missionaries faced problems including disease, raids and the challenges of diverse groups of Indians living and working together. The mission was originally founded in 1716 in what is now Eastern Texas of the homeland of the farming Hanai Indians. The project was abandoned after the mission suffered greatly from lack of supplies, an epidemic, and the war between the French and Spanish that began 1719. The Spanish missionaries, and soldiers retreated to san antonio and attempted to return in 1721 secular spanish authorities withdrew their support of the enterprise and closed the presidio in what is now eastern texas the closure deprived the franciscans of protection forcing them to move the mission closer to the presidio san antonio de bexar along the san antonio river as a result of the move the composition of the mission changed significantly and came to cons- consist of hunter-gatherer Cohutian groups. As at the other San Antonio missions, the Indian community of Mission Concepcion was very diverse and spoke many different languages. Communication was a major difficulty for missionaries who themselves came from various parts of large Spanish Empire. Between 1718 and 1793, at least 150 separate Indian groups speaking numerous languages and dialects had one or more individuals at the five San Antonio missions. People from Padhidat, Takami, Siquipul, Tilipokal, Patumaka, Patalika, and from Cohitian groups who live south of San Antonio on the Rio and Nueces rivers appear in the baptismal and marriage records. The Pajalats the were the most prominent group of Mission Concepcion and a chief was first elected as a Concepcion Pueblo leader. In 1737, Father Gabriel de Vergara the president of the Texas Queretaro Missions, who lived in Mission Concepcion, tried to standardize communication to help administer the diverse peoples. He attempted to institute Pajalat as the major spoken language, publishing a Pajalat Spanish glossary and manual for missionaries. Communication was key to keeping the many economic activities at the mission functioning. Disease and violence deeply impacted the Indians of Mission Concepcion, the epidemic of 1739 greatly affected the missions in the San Antonio area, cutting the population of 250 in half. Apache raiding and later Comanche raids became problematic for the mission. The Coahuilchen Indians were resilient and the number resur- resurged to 200 by 1745, largely from new converts who came to the mission to find protection from raiding and a steady food supply. Their labor built the fortified walls that protected the community. Mission Concepcion began as a community of temporary wooden and thatched roof structures with a permanent adobe and stone structures replaced over time. The mission had limestone quarries where Indian laborers cut stone for the church, the four long rows of Indian quarters, a barrel vaulted roofed sacristy, and a fortified quadrangle enclosure. The plaza and quadrangle of Mission Concepcion became a bust and center of activity and made the mission largely self-sustaining. An 18th century inventory describes the mission as possessing a community-owned river dam, a chicken coop, an infirmary, an archive, a blacksmith shop, a cemetery, a baptistry, a granary, cells for the friars, and growing a large food supply watered by the aqueduct. This was the lifeblood to the mission, lifeblood of the mission and its waters irrigated fields called Labores. Over time, the native population decreased at the mission as people succumbed to disease, left, or became more embedded in Hispanic culture. Concepcion's secularization began in 1794 and resulted in the distribution of its lands to the 38 remaining Indians. Later, the church became a revolutionary headquarters in 1813 during the Mexican Revolution, the site of the Battle of Concepcion in 1835 during the Texas Revolution, and an American supply depot during the the Mexican-American War. The compound was left in disrepair for many years, but the Catholic diocese began reusing and restoring the buildings after 1855. Federal relief workers initiated the first large-scale restoration archeological efforts in 1930s. The two most visible remnants of the mission are the church and the convento. Dedicated in 1755, the mission church took 20 years to build and remains today as an iconic example of the Mexican Baroque style used in Texas during the Spanish period. Mission Concepcion is the oldest best preserved stone church in the United States. Its overall design is the shape of a crucifix and the vaulted roof has a dome. Two identical bell towers mark the entrance. Recent research suggests that the placement of windows was a deliberate attempt to illuminate the two side altars on specific feast days. The walls of limestone are four feet thick And inside are some of the frescoes, indigenous artisans painted on the plaster walls. The church retains the highest level of original colonial colonial era materials of any of the mission churches and is in very good condition overall. Mission San Francisco de la Espada, also Mission Espada. Founded in 1690 as San Francisco de los los Tejas in Southwest present-day Alto, Texas, Mission San Francisco de la Espada, it was the second mission established in Texas. Three priests, three soldiers, and supplies were left among the Nabachi Indians. The new mission was dedicated on June 1, 1690. A smallpox epidemic in the winter of 1690 and 1691 killed an estimate 3,300 people in the area. The Nebogee believes the Spaniards brought the disease and hostilities developed between the two groups. Drought besieged the mission in the summers of 1691 and 1692 and the Indians wished to get rid of the mission. Under threat of personal attack, the priests began packing their belongings in the fall of 1693. On October 25, 1693, the Padres burnt the mission and retreated toward Monclova. The party lost its way and did not reach Monclova until February 17, 1694. The mission was reestablished in the same area on July 5, 1716 by the Domingo-Ramon-Saint-Denis Expedition. It was named as Nuestro Padre Padre San Francisco de los Tejas. The new mission had to be abandoned in 1719 because of conflict between Spain and France. The mission was tried once more on August 5, 1721 as San Francisco de los Neches as the Nabachi were no longer interested in the mission and France had abandoned effort to lay claim in the area. The mission was temporarily relocated along the Colorado River in July, 1730. Mission Tejas State Park encompasses the original site of the mission. The mission relocated to its current location in the San Antonio River area in March, 1731, and was renamed San Francisco de la Espada. A friary was built in 1745 and the church was completed in 1756. The relocation was in part inspired by fears of French encroachment and need for more missionaries to tend to San Antonio de Baxar's Indian population. The mission encountered great difficulties in presiding over the Indian population and experienced common rebellious activity. Years before it became the Alamo that visitors know today, the site had a different name. Mission San Antonio de Valero. Father Antonio de San Beneventura E. Olivares, a Catholic missionary, first saw the headwaters of the San Antonio River in 1709 when he visited the area. Tasked with overseeing several struggling missions, ministering to the Coahuilchia Indians along the Rio Grande, Olivares believed the springs would make a perfect site for extending missionary efforts in Texas. He returned to the area in 1718 and on May 1st founded Mission San Antonio de Valero. Another missionary, Father Damien Massanet, had already christened the San Antonio River when he stopped at its headwaters in 1691 on the feast day of St. Anthony. Olivares added Valero to the saint's name in a way to honor the Marquis de Valero of New Spain. Like all Mission... Uh, Like all Spanish missions, San Antonio de Valero served both the Catholic Church and the Spanish Crown. Spain needed a physical presence in the form of settlements to counter French encroachment into Texas. In order to help accomplish this task, the missionary staff of San Antonio converted local indigenous people into Spanish subjects. The conversion process saved the souls while also transplanting, transplanting Spanish culture to the Texas frontier. Some indigenous people welcomed the Spanish as allies against nomadic bands that chose to continue their life outside the mission. By agreeing to adopt the mission lifestyle, converts had access to horses, weapons, shelter, and a more reliable food supply. For some indigenous people, abandoning their former way of life and entering the mission seemed a good trade-off for the protection and stability they gained. The Alamo's mission era lasted three quarters of a century, 1718 to 1793. Relocated in 1719 and again in 1724, the mission compound ultimately rested in its current location on the east bank of the San Antonio River, overlooking an oxbow, or meandering river band. Temporary huts of adobe brick and yacales yacales, uh, made of wooden pickets driven into the ground served as the first structures at Valero. Living quarters, workshops, and granaries took priority in the building of the mission. Gradually, a rectangular compound emerged, the center of which is marked out by modern-day Alamo Plaza. By 1740, one Spanish official remarked that the walled compound offered better protection against attacks than any of the Texas's three permanent presidios, or forts. The current stone church began to take shape in the mid-1750s, but remained uncompleted, when the mission closed and became the responsibility of the secular or regular clergy in 1793. The mission formed an insular community or town known as a Pueblo. The missionaries served both as teachers and priests. The villagers consisted of a frequently changing Indian population, often with families and individuals at various stages of conversion. Life at San Antonio de Valero followed a regular daily routine, The residents rose in the morning, said prayers, ate breakfast, went to work in the fields and workshops, stopped for lunch, rested, returned to work, ate dinner, said more prayers, and then retired for the night. Into this schedule, the missionaries inserted lessons on religion and civics designed to help speed the process of creating Christians and Spanish subjects. No work took place on Sunday or any other religious day, so the residents of the mission could attend mass and engage in communal activities involving singing, dancing, and music. Valerio's population rose and declined through the years with a peak number of 380, 328 in 1756. Mission records mission records indicate that nearly a thousand indigenous converts were buried in the mission's Campo Santo. Despite the missionaries' efforts to make the Indians who came into the mission stay, a troubling number left the mission and returned to their previous way of life, either temporarily or permanently. Archaeological investigations at the site have shed light on specific aspects of life at the mission. The buildings had hard packed earthen floors. Flint and glass points show that the inhabitants of the mission hunted. This is also supported by large qualities of bone from deer, rabbit, and other game animal found at the site. Additionally, large number of fish and turtle bones show the connection between the mission and the nearby San Antonio River. Numerous pieces of pottery, both imported and locally manufactured, have been recovered. Recent preservation pers- preservation work inside the church has revealed the artistry that went into the building. Although the church had never had a permanent roof during the mission period, a cleaning of the interior walls was uncovered evidence that workers plastered and decorated them with frescoes. The designs included flowers and pomegranates as well as a number of geometric features. Evidence of red, brown, black, green, and blue pigments have been found. Although artisans were brought to the mission to provide their expertise, local residents assisted in the work, learning a craft along the way. Several factors contribute to closing the mission San Antonio de Valero. In 1787, royal uh, royal officials formalized a a suggestion made seven years earlier that the the king claimed all unbranded cattle as property of the crown. The presence of hostile Comanche and Apache Indians prevented the residents of Valero and the area's four other missions from conducting their annual roundups. Thus, many of the cattle on their ranch lands remain unbranded. The loss of title to their livestock created a financial hardship for the missions. Furthermore, a 1792 report on Valero and other area missions deemed the future of the missions unnecessary because no suitable candidates for conversion existed within the approximately 150 miles radius and that the population of the missions themselves had declined and were unlikely to rebound. The author of the report further claimed that the residents of the missions had been converted and most spoke Spanish and were otherwise indistinguishable from the soldiers and civilians who lived in nearby Presidio de San Antonio and Villa de San Fernando. The missionaries at Valero had done what they had been asked of them and it was time for them to go elsewhere. The missionaries of San, at San Antonio de Valero did more than minister to souls. They succeeded at, in teaching a number of the converts how to be self-sufficient based on a European model. The lessons taught included ranching, farming, and irrigating. Mission residents also learned weaving, brickmaking, blacksmithing, carpentry, and stonework. The converts also learn how to govern their own community. With secularization in 1793, the mission inhabitants received titles of their own land and houses, tools, seeds, stock, and other items to help them transition into Spanish society and become contributing members to the growing town of San Antonio de Bexer. There's a quick recap. 1610, the Pueblo missions, Spanish conquistadors first crossed Texas, in search of gold by, in New Mexico. By 1610, the Spanish had established a capital at Santa Fe. Their primary goals were to convert the American Indians to Christianity and to teach them to live according to Spanish culture. The Spanish Crown commissioned Franciscan friars to establish missions. From the pueblos of New Mexico, a few priests began to venture into West Texas. In 1629, the woman in blue, Maria de Jesus de Greta, was a nun who lived in Spain, and visions of sharing Christianity with people living in distant lands. Her visions were regarded as religious miracles. She was known as the Woman in Blue because of her blue Franciscan clothing. 17th century Spanish explorers describe the Humano humano as asking for religious instruction to continue the teachings they had received during visits from the Woman in Blue. There is no evidence that Sister Maria left her convent in Spain to visit the Humero in West Texas, which adds to the mystery of how the Humano acquired their knowledge of Christianity before the Spanish arrived in Texas. 1632, the first mission, Fra Juan de Salas and Fra Diego Leon were the first Spanish missioners, missionaries in Texas. In 1629, they traveled to evangelize the, the Humanos. In 1632, Juan de Salas and Juan de Ortega established a mission near present-day San Angelo. They were unable to supply or defend the outpost, and after six months, they were forced to abandon the mission. This aeropoint is believed to be of humano origin, this one right here. 1670 La Junta mission, Spanish shipwreck survivors under the leadership of Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca were the first Europeans to visit La Junta de Rios, the junction of the Rio Grande and Rio Conchos near present-day Presidio. Franciscans traveling through La Junta in 1581 performed the first Catholic Mass in Texas. In 1670, Franciscans established the mission but they were expelled after just two years. 1680, birth of El Paso In 1680, the Pueblo people rose up, killed 400 Spanish colonizers, and drove the remaining 2,000 Spanish out of New Mexico. The village of El Paso became the base of Spanish operations for the next 12 years. During this time, the Franciscans established the first successful missions in El Paso area, Corpus Christi de Islata, Nuestra Señora de Limpia, Concepcion de Socorro, and San Antonio de Seca senecu. 1688 the missions abandoned in 1683 and 1684 the people of la junta in their present day presidio petitioned the missionaries to return to their area franciscans established two missions El apostol santiago on alamito creek and navidad in los cruces along the rio grande by 1688 these missions were abandoned. 1690, El Camino Real. In 1690, the Spanish realized the need to defend Texas against the French and blazed a network of trails from Mexico City to Louisiana. Missionaries traveled to East Texas along El Camino Real, the King's Highway. The missions of San Francisco de los, de los Tejas and Santísimo Nombre de María were established along the niches River. In 1693, both missions were abandoned. 1700 to 1713 returned to west texas from 1700 to 1713 spain was involved in a european war and new spain texas was not a priority after the war franciscans returned to the presidio area and established two missions san cristobal and santa maria la redonda de los cibolos Missionaries occupied the site sporadically until the end of the Spanish era in Texas. May 1st, 1718, San Antonio founded on May 1st, 1718. The Spanish established a Mission Presidio complex approximately midway between the Rio Grande Valley and the missions of East Texas. This was the founding of the city of San Antonio, the most significant Texas settlement of the east of the Spanish era. The mission of San Antonio de Valero, later known as the Alamo, was moved to its present location in 1724. The Chicken War of 1719, the Franciscans turned new attention to East Texas beginning in 1716. They established the mission along the Nietzsche River and built three additional missions in Nacogdoches County in 1719. French troops attacked the nearby Louisiana mission in an event known to history as the Chicken War because it was little more than a raid on the henhouse. Nonetheless, the Spanish withdrew from East Texas for two years. Moving south, the East Texas missions were difficult to supply, staff, and defend, and most lasted only a few years. In 1730, Three missions were relocated from East Texas to the site of present-day Austin. The following year, the missions were moved further south to San Antonio. San Saba Disaster. In 1757, the Spanish established Santa Cruz de San Saba as a mission to the Apache. The Spanish also hoped to form an alliance with the Apache against the Comanche and allied northern tribes. In March of 1758, over 2,000 Comanche and allied northern tribes staged a massive attack, burning down the mission and killing all but one of the missionaries. Missions in La Junta were reestablished in 1715 and continued thereafter, with occasional interruptions of several years at a time. La Junta's instability left the missionary-led Indian settlement at San Antonio de Valero Mission and the soldier settler town of San Antonio de Bexar Presidio, both established in 1718 as the beginnings of the second permanent Hispanic Catholic Foundation in Texas. Throughout the rest of that century, a total of 26 Spanish missions existed for greater or lesser periods of time in what is now East-Southeast, Central-South, and West Texas. To this number should be added those missionary centers established immediately across the Rio Grande, whose sphere of influence also extended to the Texas side of the river, such as those at Carmajo, Nuevo Santendez, across the site of present day Rio Grande City, San Juan Bautista, at Guerrero Cujulia, below the site of present Eagle Pass, and in the La Junta and El Paso districts. Some missions, such as that of Santa Cruz de San Saba at the locale of present-day Menard proved to be disasters. Most were unsuccessful in terms of converting any significant number of Indians, but those in the El Paso district, San Antonio, uh, Goliad, and Carmajo were relatively successful for several decades or longer, not only in economic terms, but also in terms of assimilating natives into Hispanic Catholic Society. Franciscans founded and supervised all the mission efforts in Texas during the Spanish colonial period. They were sent by several of the missionary organizations, the Holy Gospel Province, the San Francisco de Zacatecas Province, and the College of Santa Cruz de Queretaro, the College Nuestra Señora de Guadalupe de Zacatatas and the College of San Fernando de Mexico. Even more important than the missions and the development and permanence of Hispanic Catholicism in Texas, however, were the communities of Hispanic Catholics themselves who planted their religious institutions in Texas during and after the colonial period. In towns and in the countryside, they gathered for worship and celebrations, instructed their children in the faith, and built their own churches and chapels. Even the mission establishments were eventually meant to be secularized, that is, Version to the Catholic Diocesan Church, the Diocesan Church, the church under the bishop's jurisdiction, has already been developing in Texas decades before any mission secularizations occurred. From the beginning, the huge Diocese of Guadalajara supervised church work east of the Pecos River, while the equally immense Diocese of Durango gradually made good its claim to its jurisdiction over the trans-Pecos region in the 18th century. In 1779, the New Diocese of Linares or Nuevo Leon, soon headquartered in Monterey, took over supervision of the east of the Pecos land from the Guadalajara Diocese. While the Franciscans initially cared for the Hispanic Catholics as well as the missionized natives throughout Texas, gradually diocesan clergy arrived to take over this role in one place after another. Beginning with the secular priest who became the first pastor of San Fernando de Bexar Parish in San Antonio in 1731. By 1808, at least 13 Franciscans and 12 secular priests were serving 18 different Hispanic Catholic population centers within or on the edge of the territory of today's Texas, and native Hispanics were joining the ranks of the clergy. In the the 1810 to 1846 period, that is, during the last decade of the Spanish regime and the first decades of Mexican Texas, a volatile, a volatile combination of insurgencies, invasions, new economic systems, massive foreign and particularly Anglo-Protestant immigration, socio-political discord, and, and changes of sovereignty resulted in serious trials and new challenges for the Mexican Catholic Church in the old province of Texas East and the Medina River and above the Nueces River. Almost all the Catholic population centers remained staffed by priests up until the Texas Revolution, but the increasing numbers of foreign and mostly non-Catholic immigrants east of the Guadalupe River rarely saw a Catholic clergyman, a situation that pleased most of them. The Revolution wreaked havoc on the Mexican Catholic communities above the Nueces, totally displacing some, damaging, and in some cases, expropriating their, Catholic, their church buildings and reducing the clergy presence to San Antonio alone. Wherever Mexicans remained, however, their Catholic faith communities endured thanks to the continuing lay initiative as well as the ministry of whatever priests were available. Along the Rio Grande, the changes were real but much less drastic, and Mexican priests managed to continue to provide pastoral care to all the communities. In response to the radical changes in the newly independent Republic of Texas, Catholic Church authorities made the fledgling nation a separate jurisdiction from the Mexican Church in 1840. Jean-Marie Odin, a Vincentian priest, was sent to supervise the transition. He became the first Vicar Apostolic of Texas in 1842. After annexation to the United States, the vicariate was raised to the status of a diocese in 1847. Odin thus became the first bishop of the Diocese of Galveston, which embraced all of Texas above the Nueces. As a result of the Mexican War, which ended that same year, the diocese boundaries were declared to reach all the way to the Rio Grande. In practice, however, the westernmost settlements, that is, of El Paso and La Junta districts continued to be pastored by Mexican priests of the Diocese of Durango until 1872 In 1892 respectively. By 1850, the year that the present Texas boundaries were determined for the most part, Mexicans and indeed Catholics in general had become a clearly subordinate minority in Texas, but the Nueces River, Irish and other European Catholic immigrants were numerous enough, however, in combination with Mexican Catholics to become the target of Anglo-Protestant nativist campaigns in the 1850s. Along the Rio Grande, mainly Mexican but also a few or European-origin Catholics exercised enough numerical and political power to oblige newcomers from the dominant United States society to adopt a generally more accommodating approach. In keeping with the general population growth in Texas, the estimated number of Catholics swelled from fewer than 40,000 in 1850 to 150,000 in 1880. To attend to this mixed population of Mexican, European, and Anglo-American Catholics, Bishop Odin and his successor, Claude Maria Dubois, recruited heavily from Europe to obtain Catholic congregations of men, Catholic congregations of women, and secular clergy. The religious congregation contributed greatly to the development of institutions of Catholic education in Texas. The women religious established the first centers of Catholic healthcare and other Catholic social services such as St. Mary's Hospital and St. Mary's Orphanage in in Galveston. To tend better to the rapid growth of post-Civil War Texas, several new church jurisdictions were established in 1872. The Vicariate Apostolic of Tucson in Arizona took over the El Paso District from the Mexican Church. The Diocese of San Antonio elevated to an archdiocese in 1926, and the Vicariate Apostolic of Brownsville were established in 1874. Holy Rosary Church and his company school. If you want more on the Catholic Church in Frontier, Texas from 1836 to 1900, I recommend Through, Fire, and Flood by James Talmage Moore. It's available on uh, Tamu Press, Amazon, eBay, and the works. Links will be below in the show notes. From the book American Martyrs from 1542, by Albert Nevins, we have the accounts of Father Diego de la Cruz, Father Hernando Mendez, Father Juan Ferrer, Brother Juan de Mena, all Dominicans, this is year 1553. There is some doubt whether these men should be included in a list of American Martyrs, because their deaths seem not to be a result of odium fidei hatred of the faith but simply because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time however as they were included in the list of martyrs prepared by the American bishops for submission to Rome they are listed here in the spring of 1553 a fleet of 20 ships sailed from Veracruz for Spain among the approximately 1,000 passengers were five Dominicans three priests, and two brothers. Somewhere in the vicinity of Cuba, the vessels were engulfed in a severe tropical depression, possibly a hurricane, and 16 of the ships were driven back across the Gulf of Mexico and wrecked off the coast of Texas with a great loss of life by drowning and, among the survivors, by starvation. One of the ships, a galleon, sank off Padre Island Among the survivors were the five Dominicans who decided to travel overland to reach Tampico and safety, along with the layman Francisco Vasquez. Only the Dominican brothers Marcos de Mana and Vasquez reached their goal. They reported that fathers Diego de la Cruz and Hernando Mendez had been wounded by Indians and died on the banks of the Rio Grande while seeking friendly Indians to whom they could preach the gospel brother Juan de Mena, had died near another river farther west from an arrow that had pierced his back. It was not clear whether Father Juan Ferrer, a relative of St. Vincent Ferrer, died from wounds or exhaustion. The wreck of the ship was discovered 600 yards off Padre Island in about 20 feet of water, and over the summers of 1972 and 1973, under the supervision of the Texas Antiquities Committee, some 25,000 pounds of artifacts were recovered, thus concluding the story of the tragedy. Father Zenobi Membre, Franciscan, 1689, Father Maxim Leclerc, another Franciscan, and Father Chef Ville Through its exploration and occupation, Spain claimed possession of the southern and southwestern part of what is now the United States. However, France infringed on this ownership when Robert Cavert Seigneur de La Salle explored the Mississippi and claimed the entire valley for France in 1682. Two years later, he led a new expedition with the purpose of founding a French colony in this region. After an venturesome voyage, the the French explorer reached Montagorda Bay. Three priests were to remain at the fort along with the so- settlers, while La Salle and his party went searching for the Mississippi. During which time, a mutiny cost him his life. The priests who were left behind to care for the settlers and work among the Indians were two Franciscans, Father Zenobe Membre, who had been La Salle's chaplain in 1682, and Father Maxim Leclerc and a Sulpician, the Abbey, Chef de Valle. Fort St. Louis continued to exist under great difficulties after La Salle's death. The Karankawa Indians of the region frequented the fort, and when a group of them entered the fort in mid-January 1689, no one thought anything of it. While these Indians distracted the French, a large body of Karankawas emerged from hiding and fell upon the unsuspecting French, massacring all but five who were taken captive as slaves. Among the dead were the three priests. This ended French penetration of Texas, and as a result, Spaniards began settling and Christianized the area. Brother Jose Pita, Franciscan, 1721. Again, the list of American bishops has a name that is doubtful in the list of martyrs, He is brother Jose Pita, who was killed by Apaches in 1721 in East Texas, along with a companion. The two Spaniards were hunting buffalo when the Apaches found them. It is true the Apaches were enemies of the Spanish and the religion, but there is no evidence that brother Jose's death was an odium fidei. Later, his remains were recovered and brought to San Antonio for burial. The place of his death was near Rockdale. Brother Luis Montes de Acá, Franciscan, 1726. Brother Luis served as a procurator for the Franciscan-Texas missions, bringing them supplies as needed. He was on his way to Mission Nuestra Señora de Espíritu Santo in 1726 when he perished in a prairie fire started by hostile Indians. The news of his death was received in Zacatas, Mexico in January 1727. Some years later, a memorial sent to the commissionary general in Spain by Francisco Valero, guardian of Zacatas College, simply stated he, quote, died in the flames of a fire started by Indians hostile to us. The dates given in the bishop's report are inaccurate on the basis of the above information. The place of death was in eastern Texas. Father Francisco Xavier Silva, Franciscan, 1749. While on the way from San Antonio to Mission San Juan Bautista and accompanied by soldiers, Father Silva and his party were attacked by the Tagis Apaches and all were killed. In a report sent to the Commissioner General in Spain, Father Guardian Francisco Valero said that the missioner, quote, was pierced by arrows and torn to pieces by the Apaches, whose ferocity was so great that they devoured his flesh. Father Habig reports that the slain priest had gone to get supplies for a new mission he was to open at the Nuches River and that the Apaches sought to stop the work of the missioners and prevent new missions from opening. The bodies of the murdered Spaniards were found by friendly Indians and Father Silva was buried in San Juan Bautista. Father Jose Francisco Gonzabal, Franciscan, 1752. Captain Felipe de Rabago, commander commande of the Presidio at San Xavier, was a dissolute man. When he took the wife of one of his soldiers, Jose Caballos, for his own pleasure, he was excommunicated by the superior of the San Xavier missions. And Father Gonzabal nailed the excommunication on the Presidio door. Rabago arrested Caballos and, while holding him in prison, assaulted the man's wife before him. Caballos finally escaped and took refuge in Mission Candelaria, but Rabago, ignoring the rite of sanctuary, rode his horse into the mission chapel and seized the betrayed man. Caballos was released ten days later, however, and returned to Candelaria, when the missioners threatened to report his, this violation of Sanctuary to Mexico City. Finally, Robago sent four soldiers to murder Caballos and the priests. On the way, they were joined by a renegade Indian, Andres. The culprits arrived at the mission after dark. They saw Caballos seated at a table with Fathers Gonzábal and Miguel pinilla Two shots rang out and Caballos fell to the floor, mortally wounded. Father Penila bent over the dying man. Father Ganzabal snatched up the candle and rushed to the door. Andres let go an arrow at the priest and pierced him under the left arm and entered his heart. Father Ganzabal dropped to the floor dead, and the candle went out, thus saving Father Penila. Caballos was killed because he stood in the way of Rabago. Father Gonzábal was slain because he had protested Rabago's debauchery and had posted the excommunication. Father Pinilla was, was to have been killed because he had issued the excommunication. Castaneda, in his History of the Texas Missions, says that there is no doubt that Father Gonzábal was martyred for the denunciation of the vices of Rabago and his soldiers. The date of the murder was May 11, 1752. Robago was later taken as a prisoner to Mexico City, where, after some years and a number of trials, he was released for lack of evidence that he was personally involved. Father Alonso Geraldo de Terreros, Franciscan, 1758. Father Jose Santisteban Alberin, Franciscan, 1758. These missionaries were killed at San Saba Mission near the present Menara, Texas, on March 16, 1758. Father De Terreros was born in Spain on June 19, 1699 and entered the Franciscans at their college in Cuartero, Mexico, in 1721. After ordination, he was assigned to the Texas missions in 1728. Father Herberon was born in Navarre in 1719 and became a Franciscan in Pamplona. He was assigned to Mexico in 1749. These two priests, together with Father Miguel Molina, were stationed at San Saba Mission in 1758, a foundation that had been made to serve Christian Apaches and to work among those who were pagans. Shortly after sunrise on March 16, a band of Comanche Indians Enemies of the Apaches raided the mission. Father Aberin was preparing to say mass when Father Melina warned him of what was happening. Father Terreros went to the mission gate to try to reason with the Comanches, but he was cut down by two bullets and also received a lance thrust. The invaders found Father Aberin kneeling before the altar of the church and they decapitated him there. Father Melina received a bullet wound in the chest but he managed to escape with his life and recovered from his wound. Father Antonio Diaz de Leon, Franciscan, 1834. Father Diaz has been called the last Padre of Texas. He was the superior of the Texas missions when they were secularized and their land divided between Indians and settlers. The Spanish Padres were forced to return to Spain and there were not sufficient Mexican Padres to make up their loss. Along with others, Fala Diaz returned to Mexico. In 1832, however, the Bishop of Monterey asked him to minister to the needs of scattered Catholics in the vicinity of Nacodoches in eastern Texas. The new responsibility made him a traveling missioner as he moved from settlement to settlement seeking out those whom he could serve. The area was filled with newcomers, some of them bandits who had fled to Texas because they were wanted in the United States, others ruffians and rustabouts, looking for opportunities to gain, still others bigots against the Catholic Church and its priests. Some of these latter made threats against Father Diaz, but he could not imagine anyone doing him injury. Father Diaz had considerable success. He brought many Catholics back to the religion and converted other Anglos. In 1833, he baptized Sam Houston, who was to win independence for Texas at, at the Battle of San Jacinto three years later. When in late October 1834, he was asked to go to the Trinity River to witness a marriage, he hesitated because threats against him had become so insistent. Duty seemed more important, however. So he went, and after the wedding, visited Catholics in the vicinity, accompanied by a Kentuckian, Philip Miller, whom the groom had sent along to protect the priest. On November 2nd, he was at the home of Peter Menard, a Catholic, when he had a premonition of death. With paper and ink borrowed from his host, he wrote a last will and testament, stating in it that, quote, it seems to me to be the last day of my life. God knows why. They stopped at another farm the next day and on November 3rd traveled about 20 miles to Big Sandy Creek, where they made camp for the night. Shortly before daybreak, Miller later reported, he was awakened by something, but not a shot. He went to stir up the fire and found Father Diaz with blood trickling from his mouth, a pistol near his body, instantly killed by a shot through the heart. What happened that night was never determined. Whether Miller killed the priest or covered up for some enemy who crept up in the night, no one ever found out. It was the opinion of Catholics that a zealous priest had been the victim of one of the bigots who had threatened him. The Catholics believed he was killed for his faith and was a martyr. The death took place near San Agustin, 30 miles from Nagadoches, on November 4. He was buried by Miller and a settler, and the grave has never been found. Their prayers were answered. Those words on a plaque at St. Mary's Grotto in tiny Windthirst preach a mighty sermon. During World War II, 64 area men went off to fight, while folks at home fervently prayed to Our Lady of Perpetual Help to protect their kin. Soldiers sent back a portion of their military pay to fund a grotto. Miraculously, every soldier returned home alive. A 1949 hillside grotto about 30 feet wide with a 20-foot tall opening sits below St. Mary's Church. Built in 1929 on a Depression-era budget, St. Mary's Catholic Church in Humbarger was white as a barn inside. White walls, white stations of the cross, until 1945 when the pastor had a divine idea. Recruit Italian POW artists interned at nearby camp, Hereford, to decorate the church. In exchange, parish women would feed the men. The German vitals were so good, the POWs returned week after week, transforming the white barn into a seventh heaven. An angel mural, three large sanctuary paintings of Mary, a wood carved last supper. There Harley is an inch the POWs didn't touch. Now these accounts are coming from Monuments Marvels and Miracles A Traveler's Guide to Catholic America by Marian Amberg. It's a cool book by the way. This is Pass Under the Streetwide Archway Announcing St. Peter's Catholic Church in Small Town Lindsay and you'll enter a house of God like no other. Built by German settlers in 1918, The Neo-Romanesque church is a dazzling array of Byzantine abstract and geometric designs, from diamond-shaped tiles to striped walls to colorful Greek crosses on the ceiling. Other remarkable features include the Barren style stations of the cross, replicas of the once-renowned set in Stuttgart, Germany. Study the 11th station. Jesus is looking at the viewer just before being nailed to the cross. German native Friedelin Fuchs did much of the artwork on the grounds. You'll find four chapels and a grotto. Here's some photos on the uh, St. Peter's and Lindsay website. The original one was apparently hit by a, uh, a haiku, and they said cyclone. And you got photos of that here somewhere. Sorry. Yeah, here's the uh, photos of the. Uh, See, the first church built in Lindsay was a small frame building constructed in 1892, which was used until the completion of a larger brick church in 1903. The original frame church served as a school until the com- completion of the grade school in 1917. The 1903 church was hit directly by a cyclone on the night of May 31st, 1917, and was almost completely destroyed. Here's some of the stained glass. Obviously you see what I was, we were describing the tiles and different patterns, colorful everywhere. Everything's, that's, that's pretty neat. Let's see, let's go right to the stations. I won't do the the, the dedication was pretty bad. The cool stations of the cross. See what I was talking about. He was looking at yes, yeah, they said Jesus was looking at the viewer just before being nailed. The Marian Shrine of Our Lady of Schoenstatt. This is in Austin, Texas. The Schoenstatt Shrine is a spiritual home. It is dedicated to Mary as the mother, thrice admirable, of Schoenstatt. There we experience the deepest sense of belonging as children to the Mother of God, as brothers and sisters of Jesus, and beloved sons and daughters of our Father. Let's see. Here's the original shrine in Stornstatt, Germany. And... Really, there's 200 of these now. It's the first Schoenstatt Shrine, located in Germany near Blands on the Rhine, uh, became Our Lady's Place of Grace in 1914. Throughout the years, many such shrines have been built on all continents, each of them an exact replica of the Mother Shrine. The first chapel became the original shrine and the first of many replicas to follow around the world today there are more than 200 shrines to be found on every continent each one home to christ in the tabernacle to the blessed mother and to every child of god who comes to pray and learn each shrine is connected by grace to the original shrine in schoenstatt germany i guess there's a bunch of shrines different ones all over the place there in the u.s and abroad the austin schoenstatt shrine was dedicated on september 13th 2014 Schoenstatt's jubilee year, as the third shrine in Texas and the tenth shrine in the United States, as is every Schoenstatt Schoenstatt shrine, is a replica of the original shrine in Schoenstatt. Schoenstatt, Germany, this shrine bears the specific name of Bethlehem Cradle of Sanctity, as discerned by the local Schoenstatt family. Our shrine is a ministry of the Schoenstatt fathers who provide the priestly pastoral care for those who visit us. Uh, If you ever want the website, it's showingstataustin.us, and they have links down here for FAQs, uh, stuff, uh, write-ups on the priest who started this whole thing, etc. Yeah, that's what the one in Austin, Texas looks like. In the book, Monuments, Marvels, and Miracles, it goes on to say, it says around 250 now exists worldwide with 10 in U.S., The first American chapel was erected in 1952 in Madison, Wisconsin. The chapels with with steeply pitched roofs seat 30 and are filled with identical images, including a picture of Our Lady under the title Mother Thrice Admirable, uh, showing us that chapels are also found in Florida, Minnesota, Nebraska, New York, and Texas, and in Waukesha, um, and Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I apologize for any of the Wisconsin people that I butchered that name. The one in Texas in Austin is 225 Eddie Roy Road, Austin, Texas. Not everything is bigger in Texas, at least not at St. Martin's Catholic Church near Warrington. Seating 20, St. Martin's wasn't always so teeny. As the story goes, It spanned 36 by 68 feet when built in 1888. What happened to the shrinking St. Martin's? In 1915, the pastor dismantled the church and used the lumber to erect a parochial school near Fayetteville. Enough boards were left over to put up the quaint roadside attraction. Mass is said monthly for intentions left on the altar. Enough boards were left over to put up the quaint roadside attraction. Mass is said monthly for intentions left on the altar. You'll find a touch of medieval England in Houston's Cathedral of Our Lady of Walsingham, founded by former Anglicans and now headquarters of the personal ordinate of the Chair of St. Peter. In 1061, Our Lady asked Lady Rydkeldes to build a holy house of replica of Mary's home in Nazareth in Walsingham. Inspired by 14th century churches in the Walsingham area of Norfolk, the cathedral honors the famous English pilgrimage site. Attractions include the sky-high outdoor shrine of Our Lady and the tiny Holy House chapel located inside the church. The Mother Church of Texas, St. Mary's Cathedral Basilica in Galvingston, was erected in 1847 with a gift of 500,000 bricks from Belgium and patterned after King's College Chapel in Cambridge, England. The church is also riddled with history and bullet holes. After the 1863 Civil War Battle of Galveston, it is said that Bishop Claude Dubois remarked, only on dry days can we say mass within these walls. Tradition holds that a rooftop statue of Mary Star of the Sea with lighted crown once guided sailors in the Galveston Bay. And there's also a Schoenstatt uh, Shrine in San Antonio uh, it's called Mount Schoenstatt yeah Mount Schoenstatt that Texas, Helotes Texas In San Antonio, there's Lord's Grotto and Guadalupe Tapiac. Dedicated on December 7th, 1941, the Oblates of Mary Immaculate of the Southern U.S. Province built the grotto to honor their patrons, Our Lady Guadalupe. The grotto is shaped to resemble the cave in which the Blessed Mother appeared to Saint Bernadette in the original shrine in Lourdes, France. Within the grotto, a statue of Our Lady of Lourdes looks down upon Bernadette, who is kneeling in prayer. Located on five acres, the beautiful grotto honors two revelations of our Blessed Mother. as Our Lady of Lourdes in the Old World and as Our Lady of Guadalupe in the New World. Both the grotto and the Hill of sites welcome pilgrims from all around the world and serve as eternal signs of hope for all who visit. Here are some photos. By the way, if you're ever looking for an authentic Our Lady of Lord's statue, the, the rosary will have six decades because their sixth decade was for the poor souls in purgatory. It was a local tradition there. San Antonio's Basilica, a National Shrine of the Little Flower, is a family affair. It holds a large portrait of St. Therese of Le painted by her blood sister and Carmelite nun, Céline, Sister Genevieve of the Holy Face. Built during the Great Depression, the Beaux Arts Church is a stained-glass paradise of Carmelite saints and lore. In the tomb chapel, a replica of Therese's reliquary chapel in Lezou, France. More stained glass presents 17 events in the saint's life including sneaking into the Roman Colosseum with
1: Celine. St. Therese uh, that was donated to the Carmelite friars by the sisters of St. Therese. St. Therese had three sisters from her family who were also uh, nuns in the Carmelite monastery with her. And the story behind this painting is that uh, St. Therese was to be canonized in 1925. And so her sister Céline, who was a trained artist and did many paintings of St. Therese, she designed this painting, she did a painting of it, uh, and they commissioned a local artist to do the painting on a large scale and to make several copies of it. And one of these copies that the artist did was used in the canonization ceremony for St. Therese at St. Saint Saint Peter's Basilica in Rome. Now, when the artist presented the paintings to Therese's sisters, her sister Céline, the artist, looked at the face and didn't like it. She said, it doesn't look like my sister. So she went back on all these paintings and redid the face uh, herself. So, this is a gift from St. Therese's sisters and uh, worked on by uh, one of her, St. Therese's sisters herself, Céline. And again, it shows St. Therese letting fall this shower of roses to earth from heaven and uh, with the uh, angels uh, with a little banner that says Deus Caritas Est. You know, God is love, which is the essence of St. Therese's message. And, and then here in French, you have the saying of St. Therese, Je reviendrai sur la terre pour faire aimer l'amour. I will return to earth uh, to make love be loved. In other words, you know, God is love. And so she said, love is not love. And so she wanted God to be loved. And so that she saw as one of her missions in heaven. To be named a Doctor of the Church is a recognition by the Church uh, of the holiness, of life of the saint, uh, of the importance of their teaching and that their teaching uh, has universal significance in the Church, in other words, that all Christians can benefit from this saint's teaching.
0: knows the holy face her official name is saint Teresa the child of jesus and of the holy face
1: okay here i'm going to open the doors uh to the uh, tomb chapel of the shrine and uh, these doors are Uh, wrought iron. Uh, They were made by a uh, local artist uh, from New Braunfels. You can see the wrought iron roses. There's every kind of rose you could imagine because, again, roses are associated with Saint Therese who said she was going to let fall a shower of roses. So we have wrought iron roses. We have mosaic roses. We have stained glass roses, marble roses uh, all over, all over the place. But now, part of the process of uh, beatification and canonization of uh, a saint in the Catholic Church is that they exhume uh, the person's body. And so they did this as part of the process uh, for uh, St. Therese's canonization and they brought her remains to the Carmelite monastery in Lisieux where she had lived and served. And in the chapel, they created, in the chapel of the monastery, they created a side chapel uh, to um, hold her remains. And our chapel here at the shrine is an exact replica of that first uh, shrine chapel of Saint Therese in the the Lisieux Carmel. This is a sculpture in wood uh, of Saint Therese. Uh, lying in state uh, after her death. Uh, She died at 24 years old of tuberculosis, suffered horribly, uh, and in the midst of that, she was suffering a dark night of faith. But all her suffering, uh, she offered to our Lord for the salvation of of souls. And uh, after her death, uh, they say that she, took on the appearance of uh, as she was when she was 16 years old. And uh, there are photos uh, of of this. And so this represents her like that lying in state. Now, she was not incorrupt. I think she didn't want to be incorrupt because that was something special. And she wanted to be like everybody else. And that was even what one of her sisters said of her, uh, that her sisters knew that she was holy, But when they saw all around the world the devotion that that was uh, rising for their sister uh, and talk of her being a saint, she was shocked and she says, you know, Therese was so much like everybody else. You know, she was just one of the sisters and and, uh, her holiness remained hidden, Uh, her her great sanctity remained hidden to most. And so she didn't want to be incorrupt and when they exhumed her remains, she was not incorrupt, but what was incorrupt was the palm branch uh, with which she was uh, buried. So, here again, a beautiful uh, replica of uh, the first public shrine of St. Therese at the Liseau Carmel. And on her uh, hand is a, uh, like a ring, is a second class relic, uh, which would be part of her habit. Now, we also have a first-class relic of St. Therese here at the Shrine and, you know, when we have our normal uh, services before the pandemic, uh, every Tuesday evening at the 6 o'clock mass, uh, we have a perpetual novena and veneration of the relic of St. Therese. Uh, And then above, we have stained glass windows from Germany representing different scenes from the life of Saint Therese.
0: Mission Concepcion? That's an eye of God circular window greets you when you walk in. That's right in here. This right here. Remember Mission Espada? A keyhole shaped door. See that in the middle? Remember the story about the rose window at Mission San Jose? That's it right in the middle. In a twist of faith in Goliad, The state of Texas owns a Catholic mission and the Catholic Church, the Diocese of Victoria, a presidio. But Presidio La Bahia, 1749, remember we talked about this earlier, isn't any old fort. This is where the Texas Revolution began. Dedicated to Our Lady Loretto, the Presidio Chapel boasts a curious fresco. The Archangel Gabriel, appearing to Mary, has a six-toed left foot. Across the road at Goliath State Park, Mission Espiritu Santo, 1749, opens doors to the past. The door of the neophyte was a door into the faith, while the smaller door of the dead led to the graveyard. When the sun's rays hit a crown of mirrors on the altar, a halo appears over the crucifix. Here's another Schoenstatt shrine in Rockport. The Lady of Blue appears again, this time in statues along the Concho River Walk in San Angelo. Sculpted by Vic Payne, the larger than life bronze figure depicts Spain's Venerable Maria Vigreda with two Homero Indians, a brave and a young girl. The cloister mystic is said to have bilocated hundreds of times from Spain to bring humanos to the gospel of Christ. According to legend, as a sign of her final bilocation, the Flying Nun left behind a meadow of blue bonnets known today as the State Flower of Texas. There's the Painted Churches of Schulenburg in the Texas hill uh, hill country. Typical country churches are uh, on the outside. Their interiors are fonts of German... Here are the Painted Churches of Schulenburg in the Texas Hill Country. Let's check out the artwork of here. St. Mary's in High Hill, just looks like a temple. It looks like the one I grew up in, St. Paul's in Sparmer. Inside, completely, uh, Wow, not good size up. I mean, ceilings are all painted. So there's twenty painted churches of Texas, all inscribed in National Register of Historic Places, scattered throughout Central Texas. Four of these lovely buildings are located near each other, and are easily accessible to the public. Although they are all in different tiny towns like Dabina, population forty-four, they are formally known, informally known as the Painted Churches of Schulenburg, which is the largest town nearby. Say, about, about 80 miles southeast of Austin, visiting the churches near Schulenburg makes for an easy day trip from the capital, capital. On the opposite side of Austin, Fredericksburg is also home to a painted church that is easy to visit most days of the week. Let's take a look inside. Okay, uh, which can be visited in a fun road trip across central Texas? This St. John the Baptist, 7850 Mensick Road in LaGrange. So you can easily Google that and check it out. Arriving in Austin, the first painted church I visited was a surprise and dusty rose. The entire sanctuary of St. John the Baptist in Ammonsville is painted a deep shade of pink accented by pink and green Ivy designs. While the color itself is attention getting, it's also magnificent canvases for the many statues around the sanctuary. St. John the Baptist built in 1919 is the third church on this spot. The first built in 1890 was destroyed by a tornado in 1909 and the second burned down in 1917. Rebuilding a third time shows just how important the presence of a church was to this small town. It could not have been easy to raise the funds three times in less than three decades. There's the cemetery. And just outside the cemetery is clearly European-influenced and reminded me of one of our days of famous bone country in Kuta Hora near Prague. St. Cyril Methodius Church, 4148 FM, 1385 in Dabina. Again, looks like just a regular old church on the outside. From the moment I pulled up to St. Cyril Methodius Catholic Church, everything felt familiar. The Crouch now the gravel and the white church standing alone just off the road are characteristic of many small towns in Texas. For a minute, I was afraid it would be closed because there were no other cars around. Despite being alone, I was relieved to find the door unlocked. It opened to reveal the bluest indoor sky I have ever seen. Pat's remarkable work of art was a long one. Settled in 1856, Dubina is known as the Mother of Checks in Texas. Its first church followed 21 years later, but it was destroyed by a hurricane in 1909. The current one replaced the original in 1912. simple exterior of St. Methodius and Cyril Methodius is topped with the same iron cross and graced the steeple of its predecessor, a work forged by Tom Lee, a former slave who lived in the area. Inside, the bright colors of the sanctuary have been restored to their original glory. The designs had been whitewashed over in the 1950s when the diocese thought they were too distracting, but a restoration effort in 1983 brought them back to life. Today you can see the blue vaulted ceiling glimmering, gleaming with gold stars, floral stensing, and angels watching from heaven above. Even with the lights on, the interior illuminated thanks to the basic windows that let in all the light possible. At the edge of the entryway, a locked gate keeps visitors outside the sanctuary when it's not in use. Even with limited access, it's still a spectacular view. Uh, easy way to reach the stop is taking the Piano Bridge Road. Uh, it dates from 1885, reportedly got its name because of the noise it made when tr- cars drove over it. <laughs> St. Mary's in High Hill, 2833 FM 2672 in Schulenberg. St. Mary's Catholic Church in High Hill is breathtaking. It feels like every inch of this red brick building is painted, gilded, or adorned in some way. <laughs> Man, it's beautiful. In just six miles from at just six miles from St. Cyril and Methodius Church, visiting here is a must, even if you're short on time. Nicknamed the Queen of the Painted Churches in Fayetteville County, St. Mary's dates from 1906. Its abundant paintings were added in 1912 and a 2011 renovation restored them to their original glory. That is amazing looking. The German community of High Hill built this large Gothic Revival Church to accommodate it's ever expanding population and filled it with an intricate stained glass from Germany, outstanding statues and remarkable paintings. In addition to its elaborate altar, the church also features a painted reproduction of Michelangelo's Pieta sculpture, even the vestibule is decorated, Bible verses and German trace the walls. One of the most unusual things about St. Mary's is that the light blue wash and scroll work that contribute to the majesty of the sanctuary are not, not actually painted on the ceiling. Instead, the painting was done on canvas that was attached to the wooden ceiling. The canvases, which gives the appearance of vaulting in a, fa- in a fake marble finish in the column, add another interesting visual elements. There you go, fa, my fault. St. Mary's Church of the Assumption, Google address, 821FM 1295 in Flatonia. This is great. A turquoise sanctuary. That is great. Look, look at these guys. <laughs> everything's painted. Going to church anymore, is just bland. As with the other unique churches, the exterior of St. Mary's Church of the Assumption in Praha gives no indication of the beauty inside. From its Carlin, carlun. carlun that rings three times a day to its shimmering statues and pulpit. It is distinctly unlike my grandmother's country church in every way. Built in 1895, St. Mary's is one of the oldest painted churches and the first Catholic church in Texas with a predominantly Czech congregation. With over 200 families in the area, the parishioners had already outgrown their two previous chapels when they decided to build the Yellowstone church. St. Mary's was designed by the popular Gothic Revival style at the time. The flowers, palms, and stars that grace the ceilings and walls were painted by Swiss fresco artist Gottfried Fleury. His trompe designs mimic vaults, relief, and marble that would be seen in ancient churches of Europe. This is the pulpit. Like the other painted churches, St. Mary's is a of statues and saints featuring the stations of the cross. The true star of the building is the beautiful white altar gilded with 24 karat gold. Although Praha is now essentially a ghost town, its population expands by as much as 5,000 once a year. Every August 15th, St. Mary's hosts the parish annual homecoming for residents, former residents, and generations of extended families. St. Mary's in Fredericksburg, 304 West San Antonio Street in Fredericksburg. About 80 miles west of Austin is another of the painted churches of Texas, St. Mary's, and Fredericksburg. The the setting is this St. Mary's could not be more different than that of the Schulenburg churches. Fredericksburg is a charming town of 10,000 residents that's full of award-winning wineries, shops, outdoor activities, and lots of other fun things to do. It's one of my favorite places in Texas. St. Mary's began in 1846 with a group of German settlers and like its counterpart in Praha, quickly outgrew its original building. The new building was designed in 1908 by San Antonio architect Leo M.J. Delman. He also designed High Hill. The Fredericksburg community raised $40,000, equivalent to $1 million today, to build their stone Gothic Revival building. Almost no expense was spared on St. Mary's, whose design incorporates a corner tower, buttresses, and other Gothic features along with stained glass from Germany. The church still has its original pipe organ, which has sin- since been completely electrified. Stenciling was added in 1936, along with paintings of the Twelve Apostles throughout the sanctuary. All the churches conduct regular mass services, which are generally Saturday afternoon and Sunday morning, daily at St. Mary's in Freder- Fredericksburg. They are also open during the day for self-guided tours. Many have pamphlets that provide background to their history. For more in-depth experience, the Schellenberg Chamber of Commerce runs tours of the four churches in that area. If not for the Rio Grande flood of 1829, El Paso Mission Trail near El Paso would be in Mexico, not Texas. The flood cut a new river channel and put the historic adobes on the future American side of the river. Present day Socorro Mission, 1840, with a Pueblo step like facade, boasts carved wooden beams and a fabled statue of St. Michael the Archangel. As the story goes, in the 1830s, the Mexican statue was traveling via ox cart through Socorro to New Mexico when the wheels suddenly refused to turn. When the statue was given refuge in the church, the wheels turned once again. Here's the uh, St. Michael statue that they're talking about. Isleta Mission Isleta was founded for the Tigua Indians who fled New Mexico's Pueblo Revolt of 1680. The present 1907 church with a distinctive bell tower holds a 1722 wood-carved statue of Santo Tierro Christ interred, the 1722 date stamped onto its feet. Crafted in centuries-old Spanish colonial style, Margarito Mandragon's All Saints Reredos depicts patron saints of the Tigua Pueblo. A walking tour of San Elizario will take you to the town plaza and the stark white Presidio Chapel of San Elisario. After a 1935 fire, the 1870s adobe was renovated and a colorful pressed tin ceiling added. In true Presidio style, one wall honors local soldiers who died for our country our Lady's Grotto stands alone. Again, everything from the martyrs to now that's came out of this book. Monuments, Marvels, and Miracles, A Traveler's Guide to Catholic America. Fantastic, cool little book.